Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your guest host for today, David Schultz. Jordan and Kimberly are off this week, but there's a lot going on with SCOTUS, and we didn't want to leave you hanging, so we've got two interviews for you with Bloomberg Law reporters. In a bit, we'll be hearing from Jennifer Hijazi about this week's argument in West Virginia v. EPA. But first, of course, we've got to talk about KBJ, that's Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, to you. It's been a week since President Biden announced he would nominate Judge Jackson to the Supreme Court to fill the seat of the retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. So I rang up our judiciary reporter Madison Alder to learn more about how things are going with the nomination and about whether her confirmation is basically a fait accompli. But first, I asked Madison to bring us up to speed on the events of the past week. So the most significant thing that happened since her announcement was that the Senate Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin announced dates for Judge Jackson's hearings before the committee. The first day of those hearings will be March 21st. That's when opening statements are made. Then Jackson will answer questions on the 22nd and 23rd. And then the last day will be the 24th. But overall, most of the developments since the nomination have been part of the normal course of Supreme Court nominations. Um, The White House sent Jackson's nomination to the Senate on Monday. The Senate Judiciary Committee released her Senate questionnaire, which is sort of like a really long job application that nominees fill out with information about their past roles, affiliations, cases they've been involved in, etc. And Judge Jackson started meeting with senators. Right. And I've seen, uh, you know, some of the the photos from that. Um, This is like a long standing Washington tradition where, you know, people who are nominated for the uh, Supreme Court, you know, go around to different offices on Capitol Hill and meet with the senators. Is this just basically a glorified like photo op or are there actual like stakes here? Do they have can they have substantive conversations with the senators that they're meeting with? They can have substantive conversations, but you are right to see this as partially a photo op. Um, it, it really is a, a way for people to see the nominee meeting with senators and uh, you know, see a, a bipartisan process happening, potentially. Uh, it, it, people that she's met with already include Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senator Chuck Grassley, and Senator Durbin. Um, but they can be substantive conversations. For example, lawmakers sometimes preview the types of questions that they, a nominee might be asked at the confirmation hearings. Um, so they can be an important step in the process. Uh, getting into more substantive matters, as you mentioned, uh, the Judiciary Committee is going to be holding their hearings later this month. Um, and because the committee is divided so evenly among Republicans and Democrats, there's been, you know, I've seen some talk that there's a chance that uh, Judge Jackson's nomination might not be able to make it out of committee. Can you address this a little bit? What's um, the status there and what could happen? Well, I don't think there's a question that Judge Jackson's nomination will make it out of committee, but it's just the method of of how it would make it out of committee. So the Senate Judiciary Committee is, as you said, evenly divided. It's split 11-11, 11 Democrats, 11 Republicans. So if there is a party line vote on a nominee, an 11-11 tie, that nominee then needs what's called a discharge motion and a discharge vote on the floor to discharge the committee with considering that nomination. So it essentially sets them up for three floor votes, you know, the discharge motion, cloture, and confirmation rather than the normal two. Uh, But the the nominee still can move forward even if they deadlock in committee. The other option here would be if 
Republican members of the committee maybe boycott the vote entirely. Uh, that would uh, breach Senate rules that say that you need a majority of the committee members present. Um, what happens after that? Uh, you know, Democrats could still probably overcome that challenge. But again, that's that's really a fringe scenario. Uh, it's not uh, likely, but uh, it, it's something that is in the realm of of possibility. It could happen. That makes sense. Thanks for explaining that to me. So so basically, it sounds like if there is an 11-11 vote in the committee, all that means is that it, her nomination would just take a little bit longer on the floor to, to clear. It wouldn't necessarily be a, a problem for the nomination, right? Correct. And it's also worth mentioning that Jackson had a confirmation hearing for her seat on the D.C. Circuit less than a year ago. And when her nomination was voted out of the committee, then two Republicans supported it advancing to the floor. Right. So um, finally, let's talk about what happens when she does get to the floor, uh, if she, you know, eventually does get to the to the Senate floor. Um, as Jordan and Kimberly have talked about on this podcast before, last week specifically, uh, Democrats have the votes they need to confirm her. They have 50 votes. Um, is there anything that could happen that could derail uh, her nomination at this point? Uh, is there any indication that Democrats won't have the votes to make her the you know, Justice Jackson? I think it's a little too early to tell, but it's worth noting that Jackson was confirmed by the Senate to the D.C. Circuit 53 to 44, and she had th support from three Republicans. Those were Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins. Um, how they'll support her nomination to the Supreme Court is still an open question. In a statement after the nomination, for example, Murkowski said not to read anything into her past voting record. Uh, but it is worth noting, too, that Democrats have the majority at the slimmest of margins, but they still have the majority. And Vice President Harris could break uh, a tie. Uh, so far, Democrats have really been uh, in lockstep with the administration and supporting Biden's judicial nominees. So there really isn't much room for uh, you know, possibility of, of a Democrat maybe voting against Jackson's nomination. It really seems like a clear, a clear path for Democrats to confirm Jackson. The question would be whether or not that is along party lines or if they get bipartisan support. That's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I think some people have been saying, you know, looking at the two conservative Democrats in the in the caucus, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, and wondering if if, you know, they could cause problems for, for the nomination here. And it sounds like, based on what you're saying, there's no indication so far that that could happen from those two senators or really any other Democratic senators. Up to this point, Democratic senators have voted yes uh, on on all of Biden's judicial nominees. Um, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin have both been supportive of Biden's judicial nominees. The Supreme Court is... A different animal, but uh, it would definitely be out of uh, line with the the past votes on Biden judicial nominees. So it's it's worth noting that uh, that Cinema and Manchin, you know, this hasn't been one of the issues that they've gone head to head with the administration on. And then finally, um, really briefly, you know, you talked about the possibility that Republicans may, you know boycott the Judiciary uh, Committee hearings and, you know, not allow the committee to have a quorum. That seems like a pretty extreme step, but that's possible. Is there anything, uh, you know, other than that, that Republicans, like any sort of really extreme nuclear options that Republicans could take to sort of block her nomination? 
Nothing that I can think of that seems likely or in the realm of possibility. The only thing I would note, though, is that with a 50-50 margin in the Senate, all of the Democrats might have to be there. Uh, and we are obviously had a scare with um, Senator Lujan, uh, and he's back in the Senate now. But there's there's still time between the beginning of April when this vote could potentially happen. And, you know, it, we we have several senators who are um, octogenarians of, of the Senate. Not, not just we, I think we have a few non-engineerians. <laughs> right. And it, it, I mean, anything anything could happen. And um, it is just worth noting that, you know, Democrats might need their numbers to be there. But in that event, um, there has been. Uh, paired voting in the past where a Republican or a Democrat or someone who is going to vote yes on, on a nominee versus no, they might pair together and one person might pass on that nomination. Um, that has happened in the past with Supreme Court nominees. Sort of out of out of courtesy, let's say a Senator Lujan can't make it to the vote, like there would be out of courtesy one Republican would also not vote. Is that was that what you're describing? Yes. Yeah. Um, or Or someone that was going to vote if he was going to vote yes on the nomination, someone who would vote no on the nomination might pair with him and decide to pass uh, just to make sure that those numbers were even. It happens in the Judiciary Committee. It's happened on the floor. It, it wouldn't be unprecedented if that happened. Got it. All right. Well, that was Madison Alder. Uh, thank you so much for, for talking with us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Now we turn to what was arguably the biggest argument of the sitting, West Virginia v. EPA. This is a case that challenges the EPA's power to regulate greenhouse gases from the energy sector. Going into the argument, it seemed like the EPA was not in a good position here. It wasn't out of the realm of possibility that the justices would use this case to overturn their landmark ruling in Massachusetts v. EPA, which gave the agency its original authority on climate change back in 2007. But now, after Monday's arguments, it seems a little more complex. Lindsay C., the Solicitor General of West Virginia who argued against the EPA on behalf of Republican-led states, got some pretty tough questions, and not from the justices you might expect. But then again, so did Elizabeth Prelogger, the U.S. Solicitor General. We'll get to all of that in a bit, but first I asked Jennifer Hijazi, a Bloomberg Law reporter who covers climate change, to remind us what this case is all about. Yeah, so this case is about the scope of EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases from stationary power plants, coal-fired power plants, uh, petitioners, West Virginia... Um, a couple of mining companies sued after a lower court scrapped the Trump administration's more industry-friendly uh, power plant rule. And they also, at the same time, sort of scrapped the the legal underpinning that folks used to challenge the clean power plan, which was an Obama-era um, rule for power plants that decided the best system of emission reduction was a grid-wide change versus a source-by-source change. So overall, I mean, when it boils down to it, what this case is about is how the EPA can regulate the power sector uh, and specifically regulate their greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the uh, attorneys for the petitioner said, you know, this is not about Massachusetts versus EPA. They're not trying to open up a brawl over whether or not EPA even has the authority to regulate carbon. It really just is about, you know, this a more narrow question on stationary power plants and GHGs and how far they can go with that. Yeah. So the arguments in this case were on Monday. 
Um, tell me about what you found most notable, uh, you know, or, or what were some of the most uh, revealing moments of, of these arguments? I would say that the emphasis on major questions doctrine was probably in the underlying thread that really coursed through the entirety of arguments, entirety of judges' questions. Well, let's explain what that is. Let's explain what the major questions doctrine is, um, you know, because you're right. This is like, you know, underneath everything. So what exactly is that? It's the idea that... Congress has to be super explicit in granting agencies authority to take action on issues that are of vast economic and political importance. You know, they can't regulate in the gray area, which they often do. I mean, that's um, one source mentioned to me this week speaking to them on the arguments. But it's the idea that Congress needs to be pretty specific about authority in order to take action and regulate on really big issues, whatever big issues are. I think the judges took a lot of time trying to define that. So the, was that like most of the argument? And, and it, it sounds like it was more of a legal philosophy argument instead of a, focusing specifically on greenhouse gases and EPA and the power plant sector. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, General C arguing for um, West Virginia really right out the gate brought up major que- major questions. Electricity generation is a pervasive and essential aspect of modern life and squarely within the state's traditional zone. Yet EPA can now regulate in ways that cost billions of dollars, affect thousands of businesses, and are designed to address an issue with worldwide effect. This is major policymaking power under any definition. And though respondents argue EPA can resolve these questions unless clearly forbidden, this Court's precedents are clear that's backward. Unless Congress clearly authorizes it, Section 111 does not stretch so far. And Congress hasn't done so here. She was, you know, it's like, you know, this is a case about greenhouse gases for power plants, but at the end of the day, it's also a case about the scope of agency authority to make big system-wide changes like this. And it really set the tone, I think, for the entirety of arguments. I was reading some of the coverage of the um, of the argument, and I have to admit I was really surprised uh, that some of the conservative justices seemed like they were leaning toward the EPA. And specifically, I'm talking about Clarence Thomas. There's uh, quite a bit of talk about uh, outside defense and inside defense. I don't know how you can uh, draw such clean distinctions. It would seem that some of the activity that you might think is uh, based, source-based, is also outside the fence. And Amy Coney Barrett. Just one question. I'm not sure that you quite answered Justice Kagan when she was asking about your formulation of the major questions doctrine, because she described it as, you know, in Brown and Williamson, you know, the FDA staying in its lane, what the FDA can regulate tobacco. Or if you think about the eviction moratorium case from earlier this term, you know, it was what? The CDC can regulate the landlord-tenant relationship. Here, if we're thinking about EPA regulating greenhouse gases, well, there's a match between the regulation and the agency's wheelhouse, right? Both of them made comments that would indicate that they would not rule the way you would think they would rule. Did, did you agree with that? What did you see uh, there? Yeah, I wouldn't say that they were leaning towards the EPA. In fact, I don't even think, I, I thought the questioning was a rather mixed bag. I don't think, based on the judges' questions, you can read the tea leaves one way or another. I think where that 
may have like possibly been apparent is because they were working so hard on both sides of the aisle to try to flesh out major questions, both from the respondents and the petitioners. I thought, yeah, I mean, and Thomas definitely gave General C a grilling when it came to, you know, what, you know, drawing distinct lines around, you know, how far EPA can can go with these kind of system wide changes. So, you know, it sounded like the, you know, the attorney for West Virginia uh, got kind of a grilling from even some of the conservative justices. However, uh, Justice Samuel Alito seemed like it was pretty clear that he does not side with the EPA on this. I really don't see what the concrete limitations are in any of what you said. When you take in, if you take the arguments about climate change seriously, and this is a matter of survival, uh, so long as the system that you devise doesn't mean that there isn't going to be uh, there isn't going to be electricity, and so long as the costs are not absolutely crushing for the society, I don't know why uh, EPA can't go uh, even a lot further than it did in the CPP. Can you talk a little bit about that? That that uh, you know the EPA's reception at the court was also not you know. They weren't carried off on the justices' shoulders, metaphorically, of course. Yeah, Alito was definitely concerned with, you know, if how, how far EPA could actually go. And if they could go further than the Clean Power Plan, which, you know, EPA insists the Clean Power Plan is dead and that plan is dead. But he was like, you know, what are the limits here, especially when you're dealing with, he said, you know, some people say this catastrophic <laughs> Um, issue of climate change, which it is catastrophic for the record. Prelegar responded to Alito saying, you know, it, it's EPA does have controls under sta- I mean, it, it's not like EPA can take an action that would absolutely pound industry with unreasonable costs. That's not that is a limitation under the Clean Air Act. And she also said that it, it underscores why it's problematic, you know, her words to to talk about exercises of broad agency authority in this abstract way without an actual regulation on the book. And that would, that's really a crux of EPA's argument that we don't have a rule yet. Yeah. And it sounds like she was trying to get at the idea that, which we talked about last time, that she thinks that the states don't even have standing here because there's no rule in place. There's no, there's nothing is, is harming them. Was that kind of what she was getting at? That basically there's no there's no reason to even sue in this place, right? Yeah, it's a, you know a just disability issue. Like since there is no rule to actually test statutory interpretation with yet, it seems like this case is pretty premature, according to the EPA. You know, I, I feel like this case, the arguments focused so much on like hypotheticals and broad philosophical questions rather than really traditional questions that we normally hear in cases like these on statutory interpretation and what the Clean Air Act actually says or doesn't say versus, well, you know, how would you define a major issue for government and what is regulatable and what is not? So it really, you know, was it was a day of a lot of hypotheticals and abstracts, I thought. Yeah. Um, Overall, as we talked about last time, you know, I think the EPA probably had to be coming into this feeling pretty pessimistic. Uh, you know, the court is six to three conservatives versus liberals. Um, you know, the fact that they even took this case seemed like it was a bad sign for the EPA. Do they have any glimmers of hope now after this argument? Uh, as we mentioned, Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett 
seem to make some comments that might indicate they would might rule differently than we think they would. Who knows, though, in the end. Um, it, does the EPA feeling better now after the argument or not really? I am not going to speak for the EPA, but I, you know, there, it, if anyone at the agency thought they were coming in at a disadvantage, I will say I thought the questioning was a little bit of a mixed bag. I thought the liberal block was, a little, you know, as I said before, more active in their questioning than, uh, than the conservative block. I think Gorsuch only asked like one question or something like that. But there is a possibility that the court could issue an, just an advisory opinion, you know, since they since they don't have, um, you know, a firm rule on the books yet. I had one source say that it could likely not really fundamentally change the way EPA regulates under the Clean Air Act, for instance, but it could, depending on what they say, it could actually have a much broader impact on just administrative law generally outside of climate. Yeah, for like for every agency, not just the EPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, finally, very quickly, uh, let's talk about the timing, next steps. Uh, obviously, we just had the arguments on Monday. We're not going to get an opinion anytime soon. Um, but, you know, what can we expect uh, in terms of when the opinion will come down? Um, what's what's the time frame here? Well, their term ends this summer in June. So I we hope that we would get an opinion before that time i'm sure uh, many people are eagerly awaiting you know what the what the judges have to, the justices have to say on this um but it you know it could come at any time i it, if i were to do give a best educated guess i would imagine they're going to take a little bit of time with this one but you know who knows we'll see we will see. Uh, Jennifer Hijazi uh, with Bloomberg Law, thank you so much uh, for coming on yet again to talk about uh, this case. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, David. That was Bloomberg Law, Jennifer Hijazi. And that's it for today's episode of Cases and Controversies. Jordan and Kimberly will be back next week to dig into the March sitting. Until then, as they always say, follow along with the latest news at news.bloomberglaw.com. You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much.